Well, hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another beautiful episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our show, our guest is Jake Archibald. Hello, that's me. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, it's him, the one and only. And on our <laughs> panel today, we have yours truly, Yo Yo Yo, Conventional A from uh, They Changed the Trash to Tuesdays. And then we also have Dan Shapir. Hi, from Tel Aviv. Amy Knight. Hello, from Nashville. And last but not least, I'm just reading from left to right, Steve Edwards. Hello from beautiful, sunny Portland. This episode is brought to you by Dexsecure, a company that helps developers make websites load faster automatically. With Dexsecure, you no longer need to constantly chase new compression techniques. Let them do the work for you and focus on what you love doing, building products and features. Not only is Dexsecure easy to integrate, it makes your website 40% faster, increases website traffic, and better yet, your website running faster than your competitors. Visit DexSecure.com slash JSJabber to learn more about how their products work. All right. Well, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and kick this BZ off. Jake, I have no idea why you're on the show because my notes are completely empty. That's great. Yeah, it's, I, yeah I didn't give people a good heads up for what I could talk about because I just sort of threw some notes together just earlier today. But firstly, I, I don't think I am the one and only. Like, I look. I looked this up. Like I, I think there's a some college footballer also called Jake Archibald. Like I really thought that my parents had came up with a good idea, you know, by giving me such a obscure name. But it hasn't worked. Like it's. I'm. I'm not the one and only. I'm having to having to share this world with uh, another a couple of Jake Archibalds. I think so. You're not the NFL player. Oh, <laughs> this show is going to be uh, very disappointing for everyone who was expecting that because, like. My knowledge of American football is less than my knowledge of English football, which is not a lot. So, hmm. Well, that is disappointing. I thought we were having an episode about football throwing JavaScripters, but that's okay. We'll move along. <laughs> what are we having a show about today, Jake? Well, that's that's a good question. Um, I've been looking at the session history side of the browser recently. It started off a, working on portals and pre-rendering. So portals is this like new HTML elements proposal, which is a little bit like an iframe, but it's it's like a, a temporary representation of a page. The idea is that it would become the main page after a click or after something. It's kind of a, a, a primitive that allows you to do things like navigation transitions. So you can imagine like throw a page in a, into this portal, you load it into a portal, and then you animate it from the side of the screen to the full screen, and then you activate it. and then it's it's like just a normal navigation, but you were able to to animate the the progress of it. I'm not. But it touches to, it. I'm not going to let you get, uh, just you know relegate portals to such a meager description, because I act, you know if you brought it up, I, I think that that portals are potentially if if and when they land, because I haven't heard they're like an official part of any standard yet. I think that they'll potentially have a really significant impact on how we build websites and even web applications. I think that you know a lot of the stuff that we currently do as single page applications may actually you know transition back to being multi uh, MPAs or multi-page applications without a lot of the downsides that are usually associated with MPAs and you know some of the reasons that have caused a lot of us to to develop SPAs or single page applications. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. I know a lot of people like go from a, a multi-page app to a single page app because they want to control things like transitions from page to page. And 
yeah, that's, you know, you take on a, a lot of complication by doing that. You can really hurt performance by doing that and not realizing you're hurting performance. So, yes, yeah, so it's so offering a multi-page way, but uh, to have those uh, transitions from page to page will, will hopefully hopefully be a big win. I know that I end up in situations where I, I'm on a, a site which is built as, a, as an SPA. GitHub is, is a good example of this, where I, I sometimes I click a link and it's doing its SPA style navigation. And I know it's quicker to open it in a new tab because they do a server render. But their server render is quicker than their SPA style render because most SPA style renders don't stream. So you, you have to wait for that full page content to come through before it shows you anything, which like all of my complaints about web performance or, or come down to websites which withhold everything or withhold anything until they have everything. So, you know, they're downloading lots of data, but they're not doing anything with it. And then once they've got it all, they serve it all up at once. And it's just like, it's not what the browser does by default. And there's a reason for that. And it, it kind of, it really hurts uh, performance. So yes, if we can get back to a model where we can have like the browser's default streaming, but we can do these enhanced things like transitions. Yeah, uh, that, would, that, would, that would make me happy. The funny thing though, is that an original reason for, one of the main original reasons for single page applications, beside the ability to do fancy transitions, which you can actually do transitions between pages even without single page applications, was originally actually about performance and also about not losing context. So you could link, you could click a button on the page that started in Ajax to get some data that will update the, the page, but in while waiting for that Ajax to complete, you could actually remain interactive and responsive to user interactions within the user interface. So it's funny that you're actually criticizing SPAs for doing the for behaving in the way that was the one of the original motivations from for going from NPAs to SPAs. Well, I, I think we maybe got lost along the way a little bit when, like, so yes, like using you know Ajax as we called it at the time to you know use a press as a button on the page, it fetches some content and and it appears sort of in line without disrupting everything else. Yeah, it's great for performance. In fact, like when I was a, an intern at Reuters, which was my first ever web job, I used. XML HTTP request for the first time, and yeah, and, and it was like I had like a little click to expand area of the page, and I knew that the the database requests to populate that area were actually quite expensive, and not a lot of people used it. So it was a great way to introduce that with, without yeah losing context to the rest of the page. But once you're replacing most of the page's content anyway, that's when you start to cross this threshold of like you lose the benefit of the SPA because you're replacing anything anyway. There's like there's not a lot of context preserved, and then you're losing the benefit of streaming. So like for people who don't know, like HTML is a streaming format. Like if you've got a 12 megabyte document, like the HTML spec, for instance, the browser can start rendering that as soon as it has just like the header bit. But generally, when we do the SPA thing, what we tend to do is fetch a load of text or JSON, and then when, we, when we've got it all, then we pass it on to the next bit of JavaScript, which is going to render it into the template or, or whatever. That's not to say that all SPAs have this problem. Like you can pick a format like new line delimited JSON, and so you can download like a, you know, a set of 100 search results, but start displaying them as soon as you've got the first one. And that's you know, relatively easy with frameworks like React and Vue and, and whatever. 
or if you are just downloading raw HTML, there are sort of interesting hacky ways <laughs> to sort of to pipe that through a, an independent document and stream that onto the page while keeping the, the SPA style uh, context. Yeah, but as I say, in, especially if you've got like a parts of the page like service worker cached, if you're replacing the whole page each click, then you're not getting a ton of benefit from from an SPA, and that's kind of like this isn't this isn't what I plan to talk about in this episode, but we're, we're talking about it now. Like I have a sort of sadness with with what a lot of the frameworks do, like Next.js, where there's this pattern of like they have a, a an HTML render, a static render, or a server render, which is great, but then it lands and it re-renders the whole page from a different data source, and that can usually be like a heap of main thread activity and additional bandwidth that ends up doing absolutely nothing to the page, you know? So I was really excited when Next.js had... You're talking about hydration, about the React hydration or whatever? Yeah, there's there's two problems with hydration. One is like what you serve as HTML shouldn't really be the same as what you then go on to enhance with a framework. And the other part of it is like you shouldn't be enhancing with a framework what is just going to remain a static content anyway. So for instance, like if you've got buttons on a page that depend on like JavaScript, like if you've got an image carousel and you've got like buttons to flip from slide to slide or or, or whatever, like those shouldn't be in your HTML because the, the user shouldn't see those when they don't have behavior attached to them. And again, then if you have like an article worth of content, there's no point sending that down as data again because it's that's just sending the browser the same thing twice. But, so something's gone wrong there. Like that's a, a sort of just a waste of data. I totally agree with everything you're saying. I think that in a lot of ways with modern frameworks, we've uh, kind of uh, painted ourselves into a corner. And uh, now we are introducing a lot of, you know, amazing technical innovations that are just designed to somehow get us out of the corner, which potentially we should have been in to begin with. Yeah, I mean, so I, I played around with the build system on my blog a bit because, you know, your, your own blog is a good excuse to play around with stuff. And I, it's built using Preact because I, I like the developer tooling of, of Preact and React. I, I like the, the structure of it. And because um, Tom Miller is amazing. Yes, yes. He is an absolutely incredible coder. It's incredible what they've got. But I, I don't often use Preact on the client on my site, but I do sometimes. And in the cases where I do, it's in like little islands. I, I wrote an article about AVIF, image compression, and I have like parts of the page are interactive where you toggle between the different image compressions, which sounds like, you know, why do you need a framework for that? Well, in this case, to make AVIF work, I was actually using a WASM decoder, and parts of which I, I stole from Squoosh, which is an image compression web app. I'm, I'm part of the team that, that works on that. So and that's written in Preact already, so it's easy just to pull the parts out of that. But yeah, so I've got this long article and then these little bits uh, it's all rendered using Preact, but then these these little bits of interactivity, which are also Preact. But the hydration is just done on those little islands of interactivity. So like it doesn't re-render the whole page again. It just picks up those those little blocks. Where it would get more complicated is if I did want the whole page to be controlled by uh, you know Preact on the client side after that. And I think that's when you run into the problem of like you have to send down the whole representation of the page in, in another data format other than HTML, like usually JSON. Yeah, but I, again, like on a blog, you don't really need to do that. It's interesting because it seems to me that thanks to 
services or, or, or platforms like Next and, and Nux for View, etc., we've kind of started using uh, modern frame, JavaScript frameworks in the same way that we used to use PHP and JSP and ASP in the past as a means of generating HTML on the server side. And then if we need some functionality, then we just throw in hydration. But as you pointed out, it's all too easy to get to a point where you're hydrating the entire page, which can be really expensive and mostly totally needless. Yeah, I wonder if we'll get to a model in like a next generation of frameworks where hydration can you know be shallow and deep. Like it can just hydrate the parts which need to become interactive. But then when the wider page needs to become interactive, it can then you know, take the hit, it can take the CPU hit there, rehydrate that, and you know, hook into all of the other little bits that have already been hydrated, like the little islands of interactivity, and then do something with the whole page. Maybe that'll be possible in future. As I say, it's a sort of limitation of, of the tooling we have right now. But like, you know, things like Squoosh, just try thinking of doing that without something like Preact or React, like I yeah, I, I wouldn't want to take that on anymore. I used to be quite anti-framework. And I think I was sort of in the, the the bad old days when it did seem to cause more problems than it than it solved, especially around performance. But no, I'm super happy with uh, with Preact, especially. But yeah, you you can you can make fast stuff with React, and a lot of people do. And we've down gone down a really deep rabbit hole. I think we were going to talk about session history in the browser. I seem to remember. <laughs> yeah. So can I can I ask a question that might help us get back towards that? So you're talking about portals before we went down this rabbit hole. What is the security policy on portals? And will that help us solve the login redirect problem where you have a login that completely disrupts and destroys your app because it redirects entirely away from the page and then entirely back to a fresh new page? Yeah, so there's a an interesting feature of portals, which is different to just the navigation transition thing, uh, is when you activate a portal, which and that by activation, I mean taking the document inside the portal and making it the, the main document. That's going to change the URL bar. So the user knows they're on the, the new page and all that sort of thing, which is especially important if it's a different origin. But through a, a series of agreements between the, the two sites at an API level, the new page can take the previous page and put it as a portal on its page. So what that means in practice is you can create this thing which looks like a, a modal dialogue on top of the uh, the previous page by just you know creating a portal to the previous page, putting it there in the background, you know blurring it or whatever, and then putting your own UI over the top, and that would be your login window. But at this point, the URL bar is is showing that you're on the login site, so the user can like look at that and, and go, oh yes, I I can give my credentials to this login service because I know it's this login service. They enter in the details, and then it can hand back control of the page. You know, back to the previous page because you know it's got that portal that can activate it again. So it's sending the user back to the, the, the essentially the previous page, but now you can say yes, I'm logged in. So you've gone between two origins uh, in a way that is safe for the user because they they can see the URL bar changing, but it, it doesn't have that like full breakage. It doesn't fully feel like you've broken the link with the site you you were on. It kind of feels like one flowing experience. Yeah, that's certainly one of the things that that we're trying to do. It's problematic when people use iframes for this sort of thing. I still my bank seems to use iframes. Like if I do a, a purchase on 
one website, I sometimes end up with a, an iframe to my bank where I have to confirm details. And it's it's super bad because it's like, I don't know if this is this, this form is coming from my bank or not. It says it is, it has the logo, but you know, you can do that with images and CSS, you know, the, the security boundary is really that URL bar telling you who you're interacting with. Well, Stripe does it that way, but you can't do it this way with login applications because the cookies are considered third party. So the thing in the iframe doesn't, can't access local storage or cookies to know whether or not you're logged in. So you can't do it that way with uh, any modern browser anymore. So this is, yeah, one of the, the things that we're trying to solve with portals and pre-render because yes if you have an iframe and you've got like third-party cookie blocking or storage partitioning that sort of thing a modern um, browser. yes absolutely um, safari brave uh chrome is holding off for a little bit because google ads but eventually chrome is going to have to upgrade to this as well but i think every other modern browser and brave which is based on chrome all have that turned on by default nowadays yeah, well, one of the reasons we haven't picked it up yet is it's not specs, you know? And that's why the implementations between Safari and Firefox and Brave are not interoperable, right? Like, there's there's kind of sketches for things like request storage access, but there's no spec for, like, you know, what happens with async storages in, in that respect, what happens with sync storages in that respect, what happens with storages that span across multiple documents, such as shared workers and service workers. Yeah, I, I think it's the right move. And, you know, I work on the service worker spec and I've been supporting that storage partitioning for years now. Because yes, Safari has had a, a, a type of that for years now. They've, they've gone through many iterations of it. But yeah, it's something I wanted to support because I think it is the, the right thing to do. So the, the interesting thing with pre-render and portals is we do want it to have access to its own storage but at a time that it is the main document. When it is awesome. in a when it's in its own window, like, you know, well, a pre-render isn't visible, a portal is in a kind of shape like an iframe, we don't want it to have access to its own storage. And so managing that transition is something that we are still figuring out, but we want it to be interoperable, right? We we are going to like we don't want to just kind of like hand wave it. We want to to ship it in a way that developers can understand uh, by reading a document. Hopefully, like other developers can, you know, write talks around it or like sort of simpler documents. But there'll be a spec there which is saying like this is what browsers are actually supposed to do here. Um, so if you did that though, I mean, immediately people are going to abuse it. What they're going to do is they're going to blink to get ad tracking, right? So it's going to do full transparency, come in front, change the URL, blink for you know a millisecond. And then it's going to go away once it's done the ad tracking. So in a way, yes, absolutely. Like, and that's, you can't prevent bad behavior if you enable nice behavior. So one of the, the ways we would overcome that is like, I mean, bear in mind that what you're talking about there is possible today, right? You can do that with navigations. But you, So it's you know, not a new problem. Well, you used to do it with, with iframes and, and uh, pixel images and stuff like that. And you couldn't do that in a reasonable way today. Like I cannot overlay a page that's transparent in front of the current page without having any visual change, only have the URL change, and then have it change back in less time than the user would notice. I can't do that today. Yes, right? that's fair. But, but if I'm using an antiquated browser like Chrome, I could use third-party cookies and an iframe because of Google. Oh, antiquated. Oh, is that, is that, <laughs> is that where we're going with this? 
<laughs> I'm enjoying this. Oh, oh, it makes me sad. Um, Are you on the Chrome team? Yes. Oh, sorry, I didn't know that. <laughs> I had no notes. Oh, I thought no you were notes. just being a. I thought you were just being douchebag. Okay. <laughs> You're well, just an I'm accidental, accidental douchebag. Fair enough. But well, no, we usually I, assume that, to Jake. We usually assume that's what he's doing. So. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a safe assumption. It's a good assumption. But no, in this case, I I literally I did not get show notes for this. Uh, so I came in here and I saw Jake Archibald, and I am not. You're probably famous, and I probably just don't know it. That's why I confused with the NFL guy. If you've not seen Jake's uh, two or three videos with uh, Surma. Uh, you you should probably drop everything and and go watch them like binge on them and then you'll know what were they called? HTB two or three. You'll find the whole bunch of them on on YouTube. I'm a big fanboy of his because because of those videos amongst other things. Also because of the socks. I'll I'll have to add to that. I feel like I owe a lot to you from blog posts that you've written. I've learned a lot from them. So thank you. <laughs> Oh, we're just trying to balance out the the the, the other guy now, right? <laughs> AJ's great though, but he's just he's like very heads down. So <laughs> no, I, guess, well, no I, may, and, I may have read some of your blog blog articles, just not recognize the name as well. It, I mean, like, but it's been a while since I was heavy into Chrome tools and stuff. Like several years ago, like more than five years ago, I used to watch a ton of videos like Tech Talks and Google Google I/O and all that. That I I Amy says heads down, zoned out, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I would no. I mean, I you know, I deserve sort of what you're saying because I've I've definitely been on the other side of that before. Like when I joined the Chrome team, like I I had a real bee in my bonnet about Safari. I mean, this is like going back even before I joined Chrome because like w- at the time when I found out that well, not not just Safari, like all browsers were like every click on a web page was being delayed by at least 300 milliseconds, like in case it was a double tap. Like as a developer who wanted the web to win. Uh, over native like that made me so angry so like oh yeah when, yeah i agree with you so when i when i joined like chrome it was one of the first things that i pushed to to get fixed and it yeah and it took like safari like five years later to, to to fix the same thing and and during that time like i was really angry about that and that's like when i was like using a similar language to what you were using right but about Safari, because I was angry about that. I was angry about Index DB. Well, it was, um, it was Internet Explorer, and then it was Safari, and then it was UC Browser on Android, which heaven knows why anybody still, I'd like, God, Google, get your stuff together. Get that out of there. <laughs> <laughs> now it's uh, Yeah, yeah but, but if I may say, just, you know, to be fair. So I, I think a lot of the, let's call it, the criticism that we heap on Apple for the state of Safari is warranted and justified. The fact that it's uh, tied to operating system releases, the fact that you can't install an alternative engine, the fact that they're not willing to appear to be unwilling to invest sufficient resources in, in you know, ad- ad- advancing it in certain ways, the fact that they are po- appear to be opposed to progressive web apps and so on and so on and so forth. On the other hand, you can't deny the fact that if you look at any performance comparison table, for example, Safari is just so way ahead of any other browser on any other platform that it isn't even funny. Well, I mean, it's not very fast on Windows, I would say. That's that's you know, it's quite no, it's, quite, it's, it's yeah, doesn't do well I, on Windows. Yeah, yeah, but who uses Safari on Windows really? I don't even use Safari on the Mac. Uh, well, but, it doesn't it doesn't exist on Windows anymore. Is 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 my point. Yeah, like I, I think, I mean, Safari did 
show the way with the JavaScript engine a bit. Like I know Chrome, like we changed our direction with with JavaScript sort of uh, after yeah that, that they were winning a lot of benchmarks. I would say actually in, in with CSS animations they tend to do quite well uh, performance wise as well. They're also quite buggy, but when you avoid the bugs, they are fast. But this, I mean, this is why we need multiple browsers, right? And I know, like, I, we get comments on on our videos on the Chrome channel, uh, quite a lot of like people saying, it's like, you know, I wish, you know, everyone just used Chromium. And it's like, no, like, that's just not what I want at all. Because it is this, this diversity that we have. And it's, it's what like, means we get like innovations on the privacy side coming from uh, Safari. Like we get like, Firefox brings a lot of standard strengths. Like whenever I see a behavior that's different across multiple browsers, it tends to be Firefox, which is the one which is correct according to the spec. And they're pursuing like the privacy thing well now as as well. I guess Chrome has a sort of focus on features and you know how can we compete with native? And it's great that this is happening, right? There's yeah. Uh, so it's it's although I've I've definitely been angry at, at the differences between browsers in the past, like both as a developer and as a, someone on the Chrome team, like I would be much sadder if it wasn't there. So right right now, we only have two browser engines. I, well, I guess maybe technically three. We've got three. whatever. I mean, not just not, not just technically three, absolutely three, right? Like we've got... Well, there's we've PHTML, which is, which is Linux, browsers, Safari, Microsoft Edge, Google Chrome, Brave. Like that's the whole, that's... 90% of browsers are KHTML. Or well, it depends if you count it as that anymore. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you could say that we're all carbon, right? Like it, we're all the same. But I, I think we, we sort of branched at some point. You know what I mean? And I think the same is true of browser engines. Yeah, Blink versus Blink versus WebKit or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can refer to Safari and Chromium-based browsers as being like, quote unquote, the same anymore. I think you definitely have Safari on one side, and then you have Chrome with Edge and Brave and a couple of others on the other side. And you kind of sort of also have Firefox. But they, they um, haven't been rewritten, right? Like the, the KHTML line from KHTML to oh, WebKit I think, and Safari. I think that's so, you know, Jake or, can probably or have they? say a lot. Yeah, Jake can probably say a lot more about this. Is, is Blink completely different from WebKit now? Has it been, is it, is it like so different that you can say like, yeah, it's, it's really different. Well, you were, well, I mean, you were just telling me one was antiquated and one was modern. So like, you can't then <laughs> tell me that they're exactly the same. <laughs> so, Well, no, I mean, I, I understand there's sporks and I didn't mean to give the wrong impression that there's not like feature ads, but like, but like, rem, like you can expect almost all browsers to render things in kind of the same historical way, as opposed to like Internet Explorer used to be its own thing. And it had a complete different history that it preserved and all these bugs that it preserved on purpose. And then, you know, eventually they dropped that and they did Edge, which is their own thing. And then they realized like, hey, as a team, we just don't have the resource slash competency to make this a viable business model. We're going to use, uh, I guess they're using Blink. Uh, yes, Edge is using Chromium, which yeah, uses okay. Blink. Yeah. Edge, um, look, Blink was released back in, in 2013. That's oh that's gosh, what? that's a long time ago. Yeah, exactly. And and okay, I'll shut up now. I, time compression, man. I'm getting old. Yeah. 
So, so just think about the fact that how many refactors and rewrites have happened since then. So even though originally, I guess it was the same code, as far as I know, a lot of the rendering stuff is now ha has been completely rewritten, for example. So, but then you could, even, so uh, Firefox also uses Skia, which is the 2D graphics library that Chromium uses. So like, it's, it's difficult to say that there is like one line that starts at Gecko and KHTML and goes upwards. Like there, there is shared code between the two. There's different code between, you know, the, the, the three. Like I don't say it's, I think it's fair to say these days that there are three independent engines, which is Gecko, Blink, and WebKit. There's definitely code sharing, like, you know, multiple ones will use SFmpeg for a lot of video work, use Skia for the drawing, but they have like separate JavaScript engines. Like there will be code that's similar still between WebKit and Blink, but there's been so much that's been changed. Like, as I, I, I say, there's, the, you know, there's a good reason that developers complain about, you know, Safari lacking these things and or, or your Chrome lacking these other things. And it's because those engines are different. Okay, so taking us back, back up a step out of the rabbit hole, we were talking about session stuff, and then, and then I dragged us into this mire. So let's go back to that for a second. And it turns out you are famous, HTTP 203, big deal on the internet. My apologies I don't for not knowing who you Oh, were. my gosh. You no, I'm, this, not, I'm, oh. not say, I'm not saying it. This, you know this, this happened to me on Reddit, and it really wound me up. It was like there was an article I, I wrote, or, or it was an article someone else wrote. Anyway, someone in the Reddit comments was being wrong on the internet, you know? And so I, I, you know, I was trying to avoid doing the work I should have been doing. So I, I kind of debated them uh, on stuff uh, and they were arguing back and, and whatever. And then all of a sudden they went, oh, I didn't realize you were, you know, that Jake Archibald. I'm sorry. I wouldn't have said those things otherwise. And I was like, I, can I swear on this podcast? Let's just, let's we, just imagine. We try, to, we try to keep it family, family friendly. So Let, we get the, keep the good, the good rating in iTunes and all that. Well, so well I, mean, I thought it, some it, swearing. I oh, thought okay. he was wearing, and then I, I was like, it, it really, it really worked me up that it was that this guy was going to change his whole tact over a over a sort of idea of who I was, like not what I was saying, like, and I, I don't know. That's I, I, I think there's a there's a lot of like hero worship in the industry. Well, well don't and... don't worry. I'm I'm an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> that's how. That's. Totally fair. That's how I like but, it. <laughs> but no, like I like but normally what happens is we we have show notes that happen when the invite goes out. And I don't know if you even saw this go into your inbox because we had some trouble with this slightly, but we have we have a show note request that go, goes out. And then like we as a panel get that before the podcast starts so that we know we have a little bit of a background and we can do a little bit of Googling if we need to or whatever to bring up relevant topics or questions. And so that, that's what I was saying. I had no notes. That process failed. Anyway, I we don't have to go into I, I, the I, podcast works. I know. I, I don't worry about that at all. Like as I say, I would, you know, I would rather be, you know, not not treated as not treated differently. You know what I mean? Like it's, I'm totally happy with that. So anyway, the antiquated browser Chrome. You were talking about how the session <laughs> works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's and it's so I've the, the HTML spec in terms of how history works is bad, and it's bad because. It was never written down properly in the first place, and then and it's, and it's written in Pascal. It's and it's compiled in Pascal. Well, so one of the things that I, I guess is probably something that's come up in in this podcast before 
is uh, WebAssembly and WebAssembly and threads and SIMD. Um, and like we introduced, I mean, you know, the whole Spectre meltdown thing happened and shared memory became a massive, massive problem for the web. And that's when we saw a lot of browsers rush for a, a stricter process model, uh, but also things, you know, there were casualties along the way and shared array buffer was one of those things uh, because that, you know, created a system where you could create a timer in a tight loop and you could essentially do the, the Spectre meltdown cache exploit and read things that were in the uh, in the same memory. So I, I'm still not entirely clear on that. It, it When I first looked at it, it sounded like you could just get information like you could you could create some data and if the data was in the cpu cache then the operation would run quicker and so you'd know that it was in the cache and that was perhaps my very mistaken understanding of what happened with that is it is it like you could actually cause it to retrieve the wrong data and give you back other data so it's not entirely my area of expertise, which is a posh way of saying I don't know. But it's very posh. It, no, it's, it's essentially, a, yeah, it's a timing attack, as you say, of being able to, you know, determine things that are happening in the same process, which is a problem if your bank's website and an evil website are running in the same process, ah, which okay. could be persuaded to happen uh, with things like iframes, but even things like, you know, loading the source into a script tag, all of this sort of stuff. And so the the solutions were sort of twofold was one, like try and prevent things from other origins uh, entering into the same process uh, in a way that might be read uh, just through a, a series of sort of band-aid solutions there. But the main one is this coop and co-op declaration, which is where you say on your page is like, I am not going to include anything on this page that's from another origin without that other origin saying it's okay. And your methods of saying it's okay are cause and a cross-origin embedder policy. Or cross-origin embedder policy is the way to say that it affects your whole page. But there is a, a, another header for what website can come back and say, hey, you, you can include this in your page, but you're not going to get access to the, the, the bytes. But really, like, the best solution we have there is cause. Once you make this declaration, the browser can ensure that that whole process is isolated. And that's when we give you back shared array buffer because your ability to do the like Spectre meltdown style attacks is much less likely to yield anything useful to you or, or that you don't already have full access to. I see, I see. Um, I didn't know that these two were related in this way, but it definitely makes sense now that you explain it. So that sort of stuff was kind of just shoved into the HTML spec in a way that like broke how session history worked. So yeah, the thing I'm noodling on right now is is trying to... Uh, boil the ocean a bit with the HTML spec to go and make the session history stuff make sense. And that paves the way for, well, the, the, the shared array buffer stuff to, to, to make sense, but also means that we can spec things like portals, pre-render in a way that makes sense, but also opens the door for a, a new history API that is actually useful to developers because the current one is not. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are. 
where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just I love it. I love it. It's like it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's gonna save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at javascriptjabber.com slash raygun. So why can we not drop this stupid HTML living standard garbage and go back to something like HTML4 strict? Like let's have an HTML6 strict where it's like, if you opt into this, you get awesome features, awesome security, awesome performance, and zero legacy. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what the KubeCo app sort of does. Like, it's it's a switch. This idea of, like, you know, could we just start again? Oh, there are so many teams at Chrome, and I know, like, it's been looked at in, in Mozilla as well, that have gone about that, and they come away going, like, you'll disrupt the whole industry in a way that, you know, people are going to have to learn this whole new thing. Well, but, And it's okay, all doable with, like, extra additions that don't mean people have to relearn everything. But AJ, we... just think about just AJ, just think about the fact how often images on websites are delivered from a different domain than the actual page. Now think about re-architecting all of that. I mean, it it would be great to build an awesome, you know, new web, but would anybody actually be there? If all yes. your content but, if but... all your if all your look, most of most users care about content. They they don't care about how the web works. And if you're going to create this wonderful walled garden that has absolutely nothing interesting inside of it, you know, who would go there? Well, I'll tell you who. Everybody who wants the latest features. Like, we already tried this with JavaScript. JavaScript has certain features. But users don't want features. Users want uh, certain behaviors and and content and for the web to behave in a way that, you know... But users aren't the ones that have to deal with it. It would be developers. Like with, with JavaScript, we have we have APIs that are only available when the security policies are met, including that there's HTTPS. So anybody that wanted to use a whole slew of new JavaScript features had to get HTTPS on their site. And guess what they did? They got HTTPS on their site. They figured it out. Yeah, what I'm saying then, is... This what you're saying is the system works. So like, what are we looking to change? Well... I'm saying that you can you can put up a walled garden and say, hey, like the perfect opportunity to do this would have been with the video tag. Like anybody would have fixed their website to have the video tag, anybody, right? So you have a bunch of like brackets that don't close. You've got invalid HTML. You've got bad juju magumbo, whatever in there. Invalidation the isn't a problem, right? Like no one's like, no one's having a bad experience on the website because like there's a, a lack of a self-closing tag on an image, right? Like that's that. This is the mistake that XHTML2 made. Like it, it went for the strictness thing. It was a huge problem for uh, developers. Like it excluded a, a large a section of developer community who like 
Well, if I don't put a closing bracket in my JavaScript, if I leave my function open at the end or that I don't put a closing curly brace, like no one cries over that. It's like, well, put the closing curly brace. Why can't right, but if we if we turn if we turn the whole web to be like that? Like there's a lot of web developers like who make good content on the web who don't write JavaScript, you know? And there's that's why we have things like, you know, CSS. Like CSS is a way for, you know, styling a web page, you don't need to know if JavaScript I, to make it work. If I don't, it, put and my it has error correction. CSS, it doesn't work. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. CSS has very, very strong error correction. Like oh, it will terrible. recover that block and it will carry on to the next block. And this is how, like, one of the really powerful features of, of CSS is its backwards and forwards compatibility through very well defined error correction in, in the parsing algorithms. And it's something that, that JavaScript doesn't have and can't really have because it's a you know, it's a programming language. So it has to error out when it reaches syntax that it doesn't understand. Like, and that's, but that's why Blake CSS is the overall simpler and, you know, much more high level. But through that, it can have these error corrections. All right, well, I guess isn't, I'm the odd man out here. Isn't that just like the nature of what the web was originally intended to do? That HTML has to know the context of what's around it. Whereas others, like a, more traditional like an actual programming language is context free yeah yeah i think you're right like it's the thing about css is it it, it assumes that if it picks up later it might be okay <laughs> like you know you might end up with a bit of styling broken but it you know your core content might still be accessible and that's the same with html as well like you know it, it's got a lot of error correction built in so it can pick up and figure out like hopefully the, the right intent and even if it's the it, it assumes the wrong thing then you know the content should still be accessible in many cases whereas with javascript yeah if, if it's ambiguous where the loop starts and ends then you know there's no way, no way back from that and and that's the nature of, of those two different things and i think it's fine to to have both well, anyway, my, my argument was just that if we did implement something where you had to actually be correct and unambiguous and intentionally do what you intended to do, then like we could, people would have to adopt it in order to get new features. So if they were new developers that wanted new features, we could, we could structure things in a way that like all of this other stuff that gets mumbled jumbled. And I mean, we kind of did that with cores, right? Like we introduced the feature to be able to get be able to read data across a website and we didn't break the old stuff but if you had the new headers then the new security policy applied and and you couldn't use things the old way with the new security policy headers like we we've done these progressive enhancements where we we've let people opt in to breaking changes and it has worked and people do opt in to get the features they want that that was my thing but i i, I get what you're saying it just makes me sad that the solution is well We'll just guess at what they want. And if it doesn't look like expected, good luck for them debugging it. Well, no, because you, you can have both, right? Like debugging, we can we can point out the locations where the error uh, correction kicked in. And so this is the problem that we faced with XHTML2, when that was a, a standard that was being built, which did have this feature uh, slash bug, where if you missed a closing paragraph tag, you would end up with nothing on your page. Now, obviously, that's a problem for streaming, but like, yeah, I would, you know, that that's another matter. But well, why also paragraphs so, so, going back and forth, whether it's a space or whether it's an element block. Which browser would you use 
The browser which displayed a red error message or the browser which displayed the news article? It depends. Like, if which I is the better in, browser? If I opted in and said... No, you're, you're I, the user. No, I'm talking about the user here. You're, you're the user, and you just want to read the uh, government guidance about COVID, right? Do you, do you, which browser is best? The one that displays the error message or the one that displays the important information about coronavirus? I mean, I, well, obviously the one that displays the error message. It's got more accurate facts in it. <laughs> so that, but you see what I'm saying, right? Like the, you know, the error correction is good because it it may, um, oh, it it may be guessing the wrong thing, but it may be showing a lot of the correct information to the user. And yes, the, the best of both worlds is where a validator in, will tell. If the developer opts in, then the developer would have deployed the site correctly in the first place. I, I, come on, you, you don't have to be like, that's, that's pretty naive, isn't it? Like we, we all know that sites end up on live, like through, you know, piecing together bits of server architecture, that sort of thing. Like th there will be a version of your website served at some but URL that you have never seen in? before. Why would a developer opt into something that they didn't want to use and that they weren't capable of, of deploying? Well, I'll tell you the answer because it's what happened with XHTML2 okay. is that no one opted in, because why would you? You don't get a benefit, you only get risk. So it's like- Your site being exactly what you intended it to be. But any, anyway, I, sorry. I'm no one gonna, intends their site to be an error message, because no one intends their site to be an error message, right? And that's and that's what we're talking about. The, I like, do, if I did it wrong, I intend to get an error message if I do it wrong, because I'm a programmer. You I, do I, as a developer, but you don't as a user. And if if you can have like a warning system, like, but this is, this is the whole progressive enhancement thing, right? Like. You, no, no one expects their scripts to fail loading. Like no, no one expects them to hit an error in browser. Like no, no developer intends that to happen. But boy, does it happen! And you've got two choices there. You can either fail with the user seeing a blank screen, or you can fail with the user getting something. They might not get everything. Yeah, the funny, like, the funny, sad thing is that with modern uh, frameworks like React, etc. Very often, when something breaks, you literally do get a blank screen. Yeah, and if your if your script tag is your point of failure, which I, and I and that's that's what I don't want to happen. Like, and it's it's kind of frustrating because like, so because I always build in this progressive enhancement technique. I an agency I worked at, we built this nice kind of JavaScript interactive site thing, but I did it with progressive enhancement. And eleventh hour, the client came back and said, "We want it to work on these Blackberries." And it was Blackberries that were using their proprietary browser engine at the time. Like they weren't using. Should he use KTML? Well, I think it was WebKit they switched to in the end. But like so, and this browser, this old browser, it was bad at JavaScript. Like it was like the stuff that it got right, it did slow. And my solution to the problem, as I say, it was 11th hour. I just added a, a server side check. Like if the request is coming from this Blackberry browser, don't run it. In fact, actually, I think I did it client side. I think I just had, I think I wrapped the whole script in an if, essentially. So I think it did end up downloading the script anyway, but it didn't run it. And oh. the site worked and it worked fast. Beautiful. And, but even if, like, you know, even in a system where the, you know, it, it hit the script and failed, I would still be in a situation where the user was able to access the page on a, on a browser that I didn't even know I had to design for. And that's, that's the kind of beauty of, of this model. Like, failing hard, it's like, why as a developer it's great and you want to have errors and you want to see where you've done things wrong but if as a user you're faced with like you know 
if you're not getting the information about coronavirus that you need and you're told, well, I'm sorry, but like the developer got something wrong. It's like, well, can I see the information anyway? Oh, yes, but we're not going to show it to you because the developer opted into a thing. That's like, I, it's 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 not a model that worked with HTML2 for, for good reason, I think. Jake, I got to say real quick that you're giving me Monty Python flashbacks when you started talking about Nobody Expects. And I started thinking <laughs> about the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> but pulling us yet again, if for the few minutes that we have left to the history API. So you mentioned that you had all this, all these things that you know were forced to change because of Spectre, because of other stuff, and it kind of broke browser history. Why and how? Uh, uh, the, the spec was is built on this idea of a browsing session being the top level thing, and that's where all the history lived. But in order to have the process isolation that we need to, to make shared array buffer safe, we have to switch the browser session around. So like it was just sort of hand waved in the spec that this would happen. But yeah, it's it's down it's down to someone to actually go and fix it. So it, it makes sense. And it's that's fallen to me. But there's it's there's more than that. Like there's just so much of how browser how the back and forward button works in the browser that is that is just like not written down. I'll give you an example. Okay. So you've got a page and it's got an iframe on it. You navigate the iframe five times, and that actually creates, you've now got six session history items. Like You've got six clicks of the states that the back and forward button can be in, because the back button and forward button affect iframes as well. Like One question is, like if the iframe is removed, what do you do? Actually, what, what do you think browsers do in that situation? Like We've got six history entries, but five of them are to do with an iframe that just vanished. What happens when the back button is clicked? Ideally, those well, <laughs> ideally <laughs> that iframe should come back. Uh, <laughs> but and that's and that's a problem if now a lot of the rest of the document changes. It's like where do you put the iframe back, right? Yeah, well, uh, well, look from the user's perspective, when I click back, what I expect to happen is to essentially be presented with what I had before. That's my expectation as a user. So I would expect. But but yeah, once we start mucking about with the DOM using JavaScript, you know, all bets are off, really. I mean, how how can you actually realistically revert to to a certain state in an application? Yeah. So and this is this is a problem. So you, you end up with these history entries that don't really point anywhere. In Chrome, those history entries stick around, like and you hit the back button and nothing happens five times. In Firefox, it actually removes those history items immediately uh, 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 well so the back button kind of makes sense like you you lose all of the the history states that was associated with those iframes there's some parts of the ui where it's not quite right but it's i, I think the, the safari the uh, the firefox behavior is, is pretty good safari keeps all of those history entries around like chrome but if you click back it reloads the whole page again so you actually lose all the state you had because it's a modern browser not an antiquated one like chrome but yeah, so we, we've got like, even in these pretty basic interactions, all the browsers are doing something different because no one wrote it down. And in that case, I think Firefox has got the right answer. And that's like the one I think that we all want to converge on. And it's just like, the more I look at like session history, the more of these weird behaviors spring up where, because no one wrote it down, all, all of the browsers behave differently. And it's not always Firefox that's, that's right. It's kind of different every time, which is fun. I'll tell you what I think of it. I, th I think that on, on the one hand, 
the back and forward button, especially the back button, but also kind of the forward button, are an amazing thing. And one of the things that are the, the one of the best things about the web, the fact that you can click a link, go somewhere, and then just go back. And it's something that's wholly missing from most applications. It's gotten to the point where, where I'm using an application that's for some reason not inside the browser. I literally miss the fact that I don't have a back button. But that being said, the more applicative that the web becomes, the more difficult it is to provide a rational behavior to a back button. Because like you said, if I'm doing sort of micro changes within the page and I click back, you know, the naive expectation would be to undo those changes. And, and all of a sudden, if I as a user find myself in the previous page or even worse, the previous site, well, that's totally not what I expected. So yeah, I think we're kind of starting to reach the point where, you know, there's a reason why most applications that are not inside the browser don't actually have a back button. And we're starting to get there. Yeah, and, and that's this is the problem with the, the current history API that we've got, right? It tells you like you've got history.length, and that is like whatever, 10. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Like it means that there are 10 states that the back and forward button can take you to. But that might be on other origins. Some of those might not reload the document because you know, things like push state, things like hash navigations, they they create these new history entries. Like as a number, it's a, it's absolutely meaningless. And you know, if you call history.back, you don't know where it's going to take you. So this this is why, like, you know, we need to fix this API. So there there is a, a proposal for a new history API, which is much more focused onto the, the history entries that you created, like that that happened within your site, doesn't include what happened with iframes. You you can attach state to, to these things. Like the length of, of these history states makes sense because it's states that you created, not states that some other website created. Like developers have been complaining about the history API for years now, uh, but there is finally some movement on, on creating something better. But then what Which happens is, with the existing history API? I mean, uh, well, I think it has to stay there, right? Like the and the new thing is compatible. Like it, it doesn't, you don't have to switch into another mode. Like the you know things like history.back will continue to behave like history.back history.length will continue to tell you a number that isn't useful to you but it's it will still be there it doesn't damage the new system like one of the problems with the the current system is like if you call push states which is your way of like adding something into the history state like an arbitrary serializable javascript object that you can pick up later when when uh, you navigate back and forth it will create this history entry that has this data associated with it, which is great because you can read that back. And like, if the page refreshes, you can pick that up and, and realize the state you need to be in. But if the user clicks a link on the page that takes you to, like scrolls you down the document, uh, which is a, a hash change navigation because the hash of the URL changes, that's added a new history entry that doesn't have that state you added on. So it's kind of like, well, you know, but I just wanted to scroll down the page. I didn't want to lose all of the state uh, from beforehand. So it's it's things like that that mean that the current history API isn't usable and this new one corrects because uh, it doesn't lose your data on hash change, that kind of thing. And it gives you visibility into your other history states uh, that are back and forward. It's, yeah, the, the history API was one of those bad APIs that was written by like just someone sat in a room thinking and never like really talked to developers about it and checked that it actually worked. The history API and app cache, they're in the, you know, they're on the naughty step. 
we managed to kick app cash oh, out pretty much. And, but, and you you just uh, woke AJ up again. Cash worked beautifully <laughs> once the bugs were fixed, which was by the time it was about deprecated. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I, 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 something broke up there. What, uh, what did you say? I said AppCached worked beautifully when the bugs were finally fixed, which was about the time it was deprecated. I don't think that's true. Like, as I, 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 was, I, I won't go into it. I don't, I don't want to derail us on that road. I mean, if you want to, go ahead. But Well, kind of if you want. Like, it's, it's So like with, with AppCache, like every URL, it, it, you, know, you were put into a state where things cached as it went along. Or you pre-cache stuff. Pre-caching stuff was fine, but if you had like a you know a different query string on the URL, it wouldn't hit that cache. There's a ton of security bugs because it doesn't differentiate between uh, cause visible content and non-cause visible content. And that's Say that one more time. So like when what, we cache content, what were those words? So it doesn't differentiate between content that you have byte visibility into and content that you do not have byte visibility into. Ah, okay, understand. Um, and there's a heap of security issues around that that we had to fix, usually by double caching everything because we didn't know in advance whether you, you wanted it visible or not. So we had to do both. And so if you were in the mode where you were caching everything as you went along, all an attacker had to do is like hit some high large resources on your site with a lot of different query strings and it explodes your cache and the browser has to remove it. Like it was AppCache was a, a, one of those systems where it could do one thing. But it was very rarely what anyone actually wanted. I, I think there could uh, have been a nice middle ground between app cache and service workers because service workers are too complicated for the average developer to understand or use correctly. And I think that there's just as many problems, if not more, with service workers. I mean, not not um, necessarily on the security side, but on the usability side of like the cache is wrong, the cache is out of date, it didn't update as expected, it keeps on reloading the homepage over and over again without the updated changes, blah, 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 blah. But it does exactly what you tell it to do. And a second ago, you were telling me that that was great. Like it should fail hard if you get something slightly wrong. But now I'm hearing that that's too complicated for people. And but you know what? Well, I, caching, I agree with the, the problem with caching is you can't correct the mistake. So when people tell it to load from the cache, I, I, the, it's not. It's I like things when they do exactly what you tell them to do. But what I'm saying is that it is too difficult for people to discern what they're able to do. It's not like a closing tag where it's like, oh oh, I put this div in the wrong place. Like, oh, no wonder it's showing down at the bottom of my page rather than underneath the content that it's supposed to be at or, or whatever. You know, it, it's it's a different yeah. type of... Beast. But with, with simple service worker examples, it is obvious, right? It's when things get more complicated and that's that's the same with documents, right? And that's why... like, And, and I'm agreeing with you. Like, service worker is really complicated because it, like, it puts you in the middle of the browser fetch internals, right? And says... You know, do what you want, but you need to know what you want and you need to know how the things around it work. Well, just like and, the build tools, like, so there's a, um, I'm working with some people, they've got an app that somebody else created. It's with Create React app and it's got a bunch of service worker stuff. And like, basically I, I got to the point where I was like, look, let's just turn it off. Let's just figure out where that option is and disable it because, because nobody understood what it was doing and nobody that was there had worked on that part. It was just like built into create React app or something. And I yes, may be misrepresenting I, I, it. I may be No, you're not, you're not, you're, you're, you're hundred percent right. Like this, the problem with create React app, and I was kind of disappointed with the, that that was done at all. Cause what create React app does is it gives you a Boolean, which I think for a while was on by default or, or whatever, 
which is like, make it work offline. And I was really disappointed that that happened because that was the thing I was fighting against with AppCache. I was like, like AppCache, that's what AppCache is trying to do. It's like, list your files and we'll make it work offline. But there are loads of ways to make something work offline. Like on a resource by resource level in a site, an app cache just gave you this kind of one solution off the bat. You know, it's like, yeah, yo, we'll do it this one way. And if you want it slightly different, sorry. And but then what Create React App did is it took Service Worker, which is the, the thing I worked on to give people the power to do what they want, and it did the app cache thing to it. Like it turned it back into a boomerang. on all your stuff today. <laughs> I, no, I, yeah, don't worry about it. But but, but, it, but that's the thing. It, but no, but the Create React app made an app cache of Service Worker. And Service Worker is complicated. And it's like one of the things that I really believe in, in terms of the design of APIs, is the extensible web manifesto, which is this idea that standards developers are not good at creating high-level features without the guidance of web developers. IndexedDB. In <laughs> IndexedDB. I've got Stockholm syndrome with IndexedDB these days. Like, I, I actually sort of feel like if you put a promise API on top of it, it's not as bad. But still, that whole well, thing. Uh, Mozilla has forced DB where they just create local storage with IndexedDB and it's like, works perfect. Yes. Uh, so I, I maintain a library called uh, IDB Keyval, which is just key value storage built on top of IDB. Uh, I uh, maintain another library called IDB, which put promises on top of IDB. So it depends you know, how complicated you want to go. Um, which which library would you would pick? But yeah, it's the idea is that yeah, standards developers not good at creating high level things without the guidance of web developers. So what standards developers should do is build the low level thing, and then observe what developers do with it, the problems they have, the tooling that gets created around it, and then try and like you know what can we do better? Like how can we make that tooling better? How can we make that tooling faster? How can we make that tooling smaller? Like by taking parts of it and putting it in the browser, like. That's what we didn't do with AppCache. That's what we didn't do with the current history, the history API. So we didn't do with IndexedDB. Like what we should have done with IndexedDB is created a byte storage. Like here's a lot of bytes, and we're going to persist those. We'll give you some kind of MMAP style access to them. Go build a ba- database on top of it. MMAP you style. Oh, you're talking C, like memory map. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Like like yeah. You you could just write these bytes, and it would uh, commit them to disk, and you would have like some way of of confirming that. And you could build, you know, SQL on top of it if you wanted. Well, that, I mean, that's what they did with IndexedDB anyway, right? I mean, all the Web SQL stuff is deprecated and been transitioned to like Web SQL JS or SQLite in the browser. Yeah, but the, the problem is it was just another high level thing, right? So, it, it, like, if we had this byte storage, people could build like low level databases that are that are fine tuned for one particular kind of storage, or they could build something more complicated, and then as standards. Developers and browser developers, we should have been able to go and it's like, oh, like people, people want this way of just storing essentially JSON data. Let's, you know, we could make that multi-threaded and blah 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 blah. Let's so let's put that in the browser and take care of that use case in a way that doesn't need a massive library and could be faster. That's the way I think that feature development should work. And yes, yeah. Service Worker was built with, have, with with that in mind. And now we have people putting three megabytes inside local storage, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, three megabytes, three megabytes is fine. <laughs> I mean, oh, you mean like in a single key value? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then reading those uh, three megabytes back in a synchronous operation. Hey, yeah, it's faster it's, than iterating over it. Local storage is is tricky, like because it's it's that blocking thing across processes. But yes, the, <laughs> but but how often?
often does that really get in the way? People always talk about blocking with local storage. And again, like I'm just, I, I have so little experience in the vast world of everything that could possibly ever be done. But like, I just, do people have a problem where it's like, oh man, reading from local storage, better sit here for five minutes. I, it's like, blink. You're no, done. but it's, it, it can become a bottleneck in the, the start of a page, especially because that's when we have to lift the stuff from disk kind of like on first access. And so if there is a, an early access before we can preempt that, and there's like so much code now to, that tries to preempt that because people do it, right? And there are race conditions with local storage across processes because it's a synchronous API, you know? So it's difficult to handle things like, you know, read a value, increment it by one, write it again, you know? These uh, are things that- Two browser tabs open at the same time? Yeah, which happens, you know? Absolutely. So, but this is something like that IndexedDB does solve that problem, but well, like it created this whole database that looks like nothing anyone's ever seen before in order to do it. And even then it's got a transaction model, which, you know, could be granular, could be more granular than it is, and could be better if it was more granular, but because we were just sort of lumped with this high level thing straight away, like it, it yeah, it's the best thing we've got, but I, I hope one day we do get just a, a raw byte storage. So out, out of curiosity, are there any significant web applications out there that are actually using IndexedDB? That is a good question, actually. I, I know Google Docs does, but other but it, than but that... it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, I think we did. We might have had more skin in the uh, web sequel game, actually, back in the day, standards-wise, but whatever. Yeah, I, do you know what? I, I just don't know the answer to that. It's not something I've really looked at. I've not, like, I've not done a lot of work. I, I do maintain this IndexedDB library for like the one, the few times that I ended up using IndexedDB as a, as a developer in terms of sort of the broader usage of IDB. I, I'm not actually that knowledgeable. I don't, don't know much about it. And now we will have the file system API in the browsers with Fugu. So maybe we won't even need well, it for it. Well, yeah. I mean, so... Again, like it, you, that's where you would need some kind of MMAP style thing to be able to build a a, da- a decent database on top of it. But that means that I, when you go back, I don't back... know if I want people that can't figure out how to use service workers access to MMAP. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it'd be MMAP style, right? Like it, it could like people have file system access already. Like when you create IndexedDB stuff like it's creating a file in your browser profile right it's just very well controlled and managed so they can't just get access to everything else in the file system right so it would be the same case here it's 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 nothing new really but i i think developers should be given like as much power as as they can have uh, in a way that's still safe for users because i i you know i, I think the, the, we see incredible innovation from developers and i think we should support that I think we can ramble on forever about all this stuff, but I think we definitely need to start wrapping up. So I just want to have this final question about the history API. So it's it's mm. awesome that you're fixing it. Uh, well, I'm not fixing. It. I'm I'm a fan of it being fixed. It's it's uh, Dominic Danicola who's doing most of the legwork. I'm I'm just trying to fix the the foundation part of the HTML spec to actually make this stuff possible. Okay, thank you <laughs> for that clarification. Sorry, uh, I, just, I just don't. Want to, I, I don't want to take credit for things that I'm. Uh, uh, so, yeah, so, so, so you're doing the easy stuff. And, yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> when? So the the question then becomes: When do you think it might land? I mean, where? When will it make a difference? Right now, it's in the design phase. Like we're looking for feedback from developers. So, you know, 
hopefully we'll be able to put a, a link in the show notes. But if you're a developer who's had trouble with history API before, or you know do things with history state, it's it's worth taking a look at because you know we want to make sure that this is heading in the direction that's actually useful to you. It's it's difficult to put a timeline on these things because you know we would need cross browser agreement. Like I I know Chrome does ship stuff maybe hasn't been supported enough by other browsers. That makes me sad. I don't no. think that will happen with this history proposal. Has um, it actually happened? Uh, <laughs> Bluetooth API doesn't have yeah. uh, support, I think. Lo- local local phones? Yeah, that, that that was a thing. Yeah. Will will the history API finally have an ad event this year? Uh, lots of them is, is in the sketch right now. So there will be a way to intercept navigations that are happening. So you don't have to add like click listeners to things and assume that a, a navigation would happen as a result. You can actually hook into the navigation. Oh, on the, page. The, the, way, the way that I've seen is actually to intercept, to replace the the push state or whatever, and then, uh, or pop state or, or stuff like that and get notified that way. Yes, there'll, there'll be an equivalent of pop state that actually makes sense. Uh, it'll be more about like that your current history uh, entry has changed, which is sort of what pop state should have been. Um, but you'll have access to all of these like history items as well, like in that that are back and forward to your current position, and they have events as well. Like they'll tell you when they're going away, you know. Because if you if you have five history items, you go back four times, and then you create a new history item to be appended on. It clears the forward history, so you know events will tell you about like that that sort of forward state is is going away uh, as well. Yeah, like. We only use events to to make sure that developers will actually be able to track what is going on with their session history and they're, they're not left guessing. Now that you're describing it, it'll probably end up being a history observer or something like that. Oh, we'd probably just use events. Like the, the, the state of when should, when should something be an event, when should something be an observer is very complicated. The, most of the observer patterns that we have on the web could probably have just been events. Amen to that. Yeah. So and, and we, we can... I got to get us wrapped up here. I hate to cut us off in the middle of an amazing discussion, but either either we need to pause and let Amy do picks so we can cut her back in or we need to wrap things up. I think I think that we should probably wrap things up. We are we've been rambling for a long time now. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It's been it's been a, oh, like a... I would I would love to have you on again and you know and have another episode maybe about why you love reduce so much or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed our 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 banter and I apologize if I offended you for <laughs> no, no, I'm not a part of that I was like bah! Oh, no, not at all. I'm not well, I'm not easily offended. Oh, sorry. Well, maybe discussing where you get all the socks. <laughs> Wait, I've got yeah, no, seriously, I, too. I love socks. I, I'm not easily offended, and like you know, I, I like I like a good debate. So that was uh, no, I really enjoyed that. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and uh, move on to picks. Well, first, actually, Jake, where do people get in touch with you? I'm Jaffa the Cake on Twitter. My DMs are open, <laughs> which is right. a risky move, but for for those of us that don't have a posh accent, can you say that five times slower? Should, well, should, I, should I try it in, in the an username? American accent? What was that? Yeah, yeah. Try with an American yeah. accent. Uh, oh god, this is going to be embarrassing. So uh, uh, my Twitter handle is Jaffa the Cake, and um, still didn't my, understand it, but great accent. And, and my my DMs are open, so you can uh, message me on there. Uh, no, so it's uh, it's Jaffa as in J A F F A, and the as in the. 
<laughs> cake as in the food. So Jaffa the cake. If you search okay. for Jake Archibald Twitter, you'll get there as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll just we'll just have people do that because I don't know. Unless you get an NFL player, and in which case, ask him a ton of JavaScript questions. Uh, I'm sure he'll love that. Yeah, NFL Chrome team Jake Archibald. Got it. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Sentry. Sentry is the thing that I put into all of my apps first thing. I figure out how to deploy them. I get them up on the web. And then I run Sentry on them. And the reason why is because I need to know what's going on in my app all the time. The other thing is, is that sometimes I miss stuff. I'll run things in development, works on my machine. We've all been there, right? And then it gets up into the cloud or up on a server and stuff happens, stuff breaks. I didn't configure it right. AWS credentials, something like that, right? And so I need to get the error reporting back. But the other thing is, and this is something that my users typically don't give me information on, is I need to know if it's performing well, right? I need to know if it's slowing down because I don't want them getting lost into the Twitterverse because my app isn't fast enough. So I put Sentry in, I get all of the information about what's going right and what's going wrong, and then I can go in and I can fix the issues right away. So if you have an app that's running slow, you have an app that's having errors, you have an app that you're just getting started with, Go check it out, sentry.io slash four, that's F-O-R slash JavaScript, and use the code JSJabber for three months of their base team plan. Cool. So we'll, we'll go ahead and start off picks with Amy. Amy. Sorry, I was trying to find the mute button. I'm going to pick something I saw in Hacker News yesterday that was actually really interesting. And I think as someone who my lifestyle now is substantially better than it was growing up. Reading this was like a good reminder where some people still are and just relating to them. And it really <laughs> it brought back some not so great memories. But again, like I never want to lose sight of like what I learned growing up. Um, so like I would probably, I, I you know, I usually make picks lightly, but this is actually kind of something that I really wish everyone would read um, because I just think a lot of people don't necessarily know what it's like, um, but it's on the experience of being poor for people who aren't. So yeah, it just like talks about, like this is like very poor, just like the stresses people go through of like, am I even going to be able to get to work tomorrow because of public transit or, you know, is my car going to start and stuff like that. So I just thought that was really good. So I'll leave it at that. I'm really looking forward to reading that, actually. I So I, I grew up on a council estate. I mean, you know, it's similar to you, like financially very secure now. But yeah, growing up wasn't. And it, it does surprise me how often, uh, you know, people who clearly grew up quite rich have not, uh, no empathy for, for it the other way because they just haven't really thought about it. So that's that's a really good pick. It's it's really good. I liked it. And um, I just, I never want to lose sight of that. Like, it's important to keep that with you i think even even if times are better yes but as long as it doesn't get in your way <laughs> yes yes <laughs> dan is my counselor yes <laughs> yeah. and uh, with that we'll move on to dan for picks because we need a nice transition from like the hardcore into the medium core i don't know if that's like Okay, whatever. <laughs> so a funny thing. So uh, my, I have a, um, our, our middle son. He's really into mob movies. So whether it's uh, The Godfather or Goodfellas or Casino, he really loved these movies. And because of that, we, we kept on telling him that he should 
watch The Sopranos because uh, that uh, ser- that show played, uh, well, you know, when uh, before his time. And uh, after badgering him about it for a long while, he finally said, okay, but, and then uh, my wife started watching it with him and they both of them kind of dragged me into it as well. And it's just such an awesome show. It's, it's, it hasn't lost any flavor. It's some of the best TV ever. And, and I highly recommend it to anybody, even people who've seen it, certainly to people who have not. One of the best TV shows ever of all time. James Gandolfini was, is an amazing actor. And, and now in retrospect, you can really appreciate it. He's literally in every scene and he just carries the show. But there's so many amazing characters there. And so basically, I just highly recommend watching The Sopranos all over again, or certainly if it's for the first time. And that will be my pick for today. All right. With that, we will move over to Jake, if you're ready. Oh, see, I was going to pick a tech thing, but I've been really swung by the sort of, yeah, the the less less tech choices that that you two have made. So I'm going to follow suit. And it's going to be a a TV recommendation as well. Uh, I recently watched It's a Sin, which is a, a Russell T. Davis show. And it's about... Uh, gay people growing up in London at the time that like, HIV and AIDS became a thing. And I, I find it fascinating because, like, I mean, it, it was a kind of, I was either you know, too young or not even born at that sort of time. So it's, it's, it's a period of history I, I knew nothing about. And it's, it's a fascinating show, but it's especially poignant now because of the parallels between like, what was happening then with AIDS and HIV and what is happening now with coronavirus, like in in the combination, like in terms of that confusion around it, the misinformation, it it sort of really echoed a lot of that stuff for me. But it's it's also just a wonderfully written and and very funny TV series. Uh, so that's it's a sin. Special T Davis, who whose name you would know if you uh, if you watch things like Doctor Who. That sounds interesting. I might check that one out. And then let's move on to Steve. Yes, since I have been dominating this conversation so much, I will. Uh try to make it quick. I actually got two picks today. One is uh, one tech and one non-tech. First is a blog post, which is interesting for me in that, you know, I'm coming to the front end world from the back end world. And so my skills with some of the CSS intricacies, like doing things like transitions and some of the fancier things, at least they're fancy to me, are not quite as good as other skills. And so I came across a blog post by a guy named Josh Komu, Kumo, C-O-M-E-A-U, not sure how to pronounce it, sorry if I mutilate it, called An Interactive Guide to CSS Transitions. Uh, I don't see a date on it, but it looks like it's fairly recent. But it's looked, it's a very, one of those things I've looked for that gives you a pretty good description in detail of the different parts of transitions, how they work. It's got pretty graphs and, and everything. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. And then secondly, sort of playing off part of our earlier conversation about uh, the Spanish Inquisition, a la Monty Python. Uh, I got a couple of YouTube videos about the Spanish Inquisition, part one and part two from the sketch. They're just classic, classic sketches. And one of those things that my, the way my brain works is anytime I, I'll hear a phrase and if it's a partial phrase of some comedic line or something like that, that's the first thing my mind will go to is finding something funny. So. Anyway, a couple of YouTube videos, so I'll put those in the show notes as well. All right, and then I will go ahead and do my laundry list here. So first, I'm going to pick the Non-Authoritative Information Podcast, otherwise known as the HTTP 203 Podcast, not because I've listened to it, because I only found out about it just now, but because from the titles in the 
list there. That is exactly the kind of thing that I would be listening as I'm walking a mile across campus to and from different classes if I were still in college. I would be soaking that thing up from just from the titles. And from our conversation here with Jake, I imagine that it's exactly what I imagine that it's like, which would be really, really good. So I'm going to pick that not as not as recompense for my bad behavior, but just because I actually <laughs> think that it looks really awesome. Very, very similar in style to the tech talks I used to to listen to as I was watching back and forth between classes. Also, because we've been talking about all this like weird browser stuff, blast from the past, Mac OS in your browser. There's this guy that uh, back when CSS3 was the new hotness created a replica of the macOS desktop experience in the browser. And it looks like it's it's kind of broken now. It doesn't work entirely the same as it used to, probably because of new security policies and stuff. Like opening up Safari doesn't open up an iframe that lets you use Google like it, it did when I first saw it. But anyway, that's just kind of a cool thing, just a technical marvel to look at. <laughs> Amazing because like by today's standards, it's not that great. But this was... It was hot back in the day when, when that was hard to do. Then I'm also going to pick a video game, of course, Worms WMD, which is available on lots of different platforms. Uh, worms games are just like stupid games. You're a little worm. You're fighting against other worms. The turn style takes forever for no particular reason, which is the most annoying thing about it. But it's just kind of fun when you want to chill, relax, and blow some stuff up with bazookas and sheep and concrete donkeys. So. I'm going to pick that, but I can't pick that without also picking Deku Deals and Play Asia. Deku Deals is where you go if you are a Nintendo fan and you want to know when stuff's on sale so that you don't pay $30 and you only pay $5 instead, which is how I've been getting new games. I just subscribe to a bunch of things on Deku Deals and I get an email and if the price is low enough, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll go ahead and get that now. I wasn't going to get it, but maybe I will. Or I guess I was going to get it when it got low enough. And then Play Asia which if you need to get the physical copies of games like the Final Fantasy 7 and 8 and 9 and all that and stuff like that, Play Asia, you can buy the Asian version, which has English, English subtitles as well as English uh, audio for pretty much every single game, but you can get like the legit physical copy of it when they're not available in the US for whatever reason. And the last thing I'm going to pick on my long list today is Alerix and Nimble. And very few people would have a use for this, but uh, we use it at church. So this is a, it's a broadcast system based on RTMP and HLS, which basically whenever you watch live broadcasts, it's being broadcast in RTMP, real-time media protocol, and it's being consumed in your browser in HLS, which is HTTP live streaming. And so this, this pairing of Larix and Nimble makes it really easy for you to use just a cheap $200 iPhone off of eBay, a Zoom H1N recorder, and be able to broadcast meetings. So if you have something that is is like that, whether it's a user group or, or a church thing or some other type of meeting situation, and you're looking for a situation, I'm not going to say that the server setup is super simple because I haven't done it myself, but it's figure outable and there's YouTube videos on how to do it. But the the experience of somebody going in and hitting record every week is ridiculously simple. And so I got a link to one of the videos by the company that makes Larix and Nimble, as well as a kit that I put together that has all the stuff. If you're the rare type of person that needs to do that sort of thing. And that is all. Before we wrap up, I have to really quickly mention two things. So first of all, because you brought up Jake's 
and uh, Surma's two or three. Uh, I have to shout out uh, that episode on on the timer that you did about creating a timer that just counts up. I mean that that episode, you know, I, I enjoyed it so much. I have to say, you know, it, like oh, taking you. that such a simple, seemingly simple thing and showing how not <laughs> how unsimple it is. That was just awesome for me and all the methods and so on. So that's one thing that I have to mention. And the other, uh, for those of you who listen, know that we have show notes associated with all the uh, the various episodes. And usually what happens with episodes like this when is that we get this uh, message telling us, uh, well, you didn't fill in the, the, the title of the show notes. What's this episode about? And I'm just dreading trying to, to fill in the title <laughs> and summary for this episode because I really wouldn't don't know what what <laughs> what we should say except that I really enjoyed it a whole lot. So browser yeah. internals rampage. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good title. I like that browser internals rampage or standards rampage. I think that's what I was anyway, Jake, it's been awesome having you on. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's been it's been good fun. And I think with that, AJ, you need to wrap us up. No. Oh yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for coming. I thoroughly enjoyed the episode. I hope that our listeners will as well. And would love to have you back to chat another time. And I think I am, I'm going to try to check out this timers episode, at least that, that Dan just mentioned, and maybe some of the other stuff. You've got like a hundred things there. There's no way I can consume it all, but it looks amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Good night, everybody. Adios. Adios. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.